If you missed the introduction, my name's Mike. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Halifax. My wife, Brittany, and our five kids, we've just come back from almost two weeks in Texas where they faced historic low temperatures. There was ice, there was snow, it was cold. One of the great ironies, let's just go down, let's get warm. Not going to happen. So we're glad to be home in the frigid north to be with you all. Uh, as I, as I understand, uh, we began our series in Luke, or, or returned to it rather, last week. Of course, we spent some time in the minor prophet Habakkuk, and now we're resuming our journey through Luke's gospel. We're here in Luke 7. we got a lot of chapters ahead of us, so this might be years in the making of getting all the way through Luke's gospel. Um, let me just give you a little reminder of what's happening here. Um, the gospel of Luke, this entire book, it's a first century written account of the life and ministry of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. Luke explicitly tells us why he wrote his gospel. There were other gospels circulating in the ancient world. Why did he write his? Well, Luke says in chapter one of his book, he writes that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught about Jesus. So Luke writes with the intention to build and strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. He writes it to first century Christians, but also to 21st century Christians. He wants us to trust that who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, is not just like this historically reliable you know, data point, but that Jesus is worth committing your whole life to. He's worth uh, your whole self um, committing yourself to him to follow him. Uh, life now and forever is possible only for the one who builds their life on this Jesus. We are in Luke chapter 7 this morning. This is still the very early days of Jesus' public ministry. Luke 1 begins with before the birth of Jesus and then the birth of Jesus. And so we've, we've gotten to the beginning of Jesus' adulthood and the beginning of his public ministry, where he's preaching and he's teaching primarily in the northern region of Israel, which is an area called Galilee. The story we're about to read, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it might sound a little familiar to you, and that's because the other Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, they all record a very similar incident to what we're about to read, but something dis distinct here is that they record it happening at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before his trial and his crucifixion. And so this story in Luke 7 is recording a similar but a distinct event that happens closer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All right, so there, there might be some familiarity with this story, but this is taking place at a different time, not at the end of Jesus' ministry, but right near the very beginning. And here we find ourselves, uh, let me invite, who, who's reading this morning? Allison is, of course. Allie, come on up. Um, let me just set the tone, okay? We're inside the home of a well-respected religious leader named Simon. Jesus is having a meal in his home uh, when they're interrupted by an uninvited woman. And through Jesus' response to her and then her response to Simon, we learn a principle, a really important principle of Jesus' kingdom. And this is what it is. He who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. Allie. Let's read together Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that we would be able to hear it. Maybe a story that's familiar to some. That it would land fresh on our ears. So we ask not just for better listening skills and attention, but we ask for your spirit to come to open our ears, to open our eyes, to see in your word wonderful things. We need your help. And so we ask for it, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I hope that you agree with me that this is a beautifully told story, a beautifully written moment in Jesus' ministry. The Bible's really an amazing book. I hope you're a reader and a student of the Bible. There's so many different genres, so many different ways of expressing God's truth. If you've read the Proverbs, the Proverbs are some of my favorite things to read in the Bible. They're just pithy wisdom sayings, practical as anything, on how to order a well-lived life. You read the Psalms. There are these rich, evocative prayers and songs that give voice to the, the highest highs and the lowest lows in the life of faith. You read through the letters of Paul and you find a theological depth to them that, that could, could uh, go shoulder to shoulder with any Greek or Roman philosopher. But then there are just beautiful, simple stories like this that are just clear and warm and rich. This, this reads so well. Just, just like, why, why bother preach, right? And you're, you're wondering the same thing. But um, uh, it just reads so well. There's so many emotions. There's such insight into what it's like being human. Captures how different people throughout history, really, have reacted and responded to Jesus. How they receive him or don't. This is really a, a very intimate character study. Uh, we meet Simon, the Pharisee who's the host of this meal, the unnamed woman who interrupts the meal, and of course Jesus, who patiently, thoroughly, precisely understands what this encounter reveals about Simon's heart and about the woman's heart. And so our, our outline this morning, 
uh, for the sermon is we're going to look at each of these characters in turn. There seems to be others who are milling about, others at the table, but these are the main three characters that Luke wants us to focus on. The woman, Simon, and finally Jesus. And really the, the central hub of this whole section is Jesus' own words. It's kind of the, the theme of the sermon, which is this. He who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. So this is going to be part one. We're looking at the woman. And we'll look at the woman's great love. The woman's great love. If you look at verses 36 through 40, we see Jesus reclining at table with Simon after he's accepted an invitation to eat with him. In ancient Israel, there weren't tables and chairs like we typically sit up and and, and eat around, rather, the tables were very low to the ground, and people would recline. They would literally lie down on their left side, eat with their right, with their feet kind of pointing out behind them. Uh, and, and that was just kind of the custom at the time. So they ate differently than we did. Uh, they also gathered differently. A meal like this, you know, you, you'd think if you're going to meet with Jesus, you'd have a private dining room. There'd be a, you know, maitre d' checking invitations. Only a select few can go in to eat. But that's not the case uh, at this time. A meal like this that the Pharisees offering to Jesus would have probably been a very public affair. You can think of it like a lunch and learn, where the Pharisees hold a meal, the community would know about it, it would be published in some way, and it would be held in some sort of a publicly accessible or a visible portion of the Pharisees' house, where people were welcome to come and to observe. Maybe they would try to glean some pearls of wisdom from the, the conversation that was happening at table. And so in this story, when the woman comes in, and the story really picks up, her interruption is surprising and somewhat scandalous, not because she's there at all. That would probably be expected that people from the community would be there. So she's not like a party crasher in the strict sense. But the scandal comes because of who she is, how she treats Jesus, and how Jesus then treats her. Again, if you look at verse 37, uh, it, it notes for us, in no uncertain terms, it happens a couple times in this passage, that this woman was a sinner. She was a sinner. Of course, we're all sinners, like in word, thought, and deed. The Bible acknowledges that, that, you know, we've all done, we've all said, we've all thought things that are wrong, that are harmful to us and to others and offend God. But this woman, she's being highlighted, and we can call her perhaps a big sinner. She's a big sinner, an outward sinner. Whatever her sin was, it's not actually named here in this text. She was publicly known for it, all right? If, if my wife, Brittany, is publicly known for her sourdough, this woman was publicly known for her sin. Her, her name was associated with her sin. Um, she was associated with law-breaking, with just being a scandalous person. She was a persona non grata, someone that, to be avoided because she had a bright red, scarlet red letter attached to her person. And just associating with her would be like associating with some seedy, disreputable figure, a criminal of some sort. You didn't want to be seen with her in public. That was the idea. Simon, in verse 39, you can see he cringes to, to even see Jesus being touched by this woman. Like, this is how, how on the surface her sin was, how obvious it was, that even the idea of her touching somebody was dirty. I want you to imagine life as this woman, right? For years, she's lived with, with external public shame. Right? People don't like her. She's not invited to dinners like this. Right? When her back's turned, people nod and wink. She's the butt of jokes. She's the cautionary tale that mothers tell their children. Make sure you behave, mind your manners, or you will become like that woman there. 
It's more implied here, I think, but also try to imagine the depth of her private and internal shame. Right? This is the problem. She knows everybody's right about her. Right? What they're saying is true. She is that bad. Of course, they're, they're, you know, they're pouring some salt in the wound. They, they could be nicer probably about it. But she really has been a public and notorious sinner. That seems to be uncontested. Even if she lived in a community that was more accepting of her, you know, her internal guilt and shame would haunt her. Even if nobody knew the depth of her sin, she would. She'd have to live with it. She'd have to consider what she's done. And she lives with this. She thinks about it. Every time she looks in the mirror, she's faced with this reality of shame and guilt. Of course, we live in a therapeutic culture, right? Like, we, we don't like this story already because we don't want anyone to feel shame or guilt about anything, right? But despite our culture's very best efforts, and we have tried very hard to minimize or to rename or to recast various sins as, at worst, just, you know, minor blemishes or at, very, or at the best, virtues that we can be very proud of, God's made our conscience in such a way. He's made his law so plain on our hearts that no one can escape the voice that reminds us that we're sinners, that we're guilty, that we know it. Is there a way to escape this shame? Lots of people have tried. They've turned to lots of different things to try to escape this external and internal sense of shame and guilt. What do they do with the dark things they carry around? What do you do? to try to cover or hide or deal with them? Can you finally put them to an end? This woman found the way. And it wasn't through minimizing her sin. It was actually by bringing it out into public in all its ugliness, into the light, and putting it at the feet of the one person who can deal with it, Jesus. Right? This woman, she weeps. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears. She kisses them. She dries them with her hair. <laughs> Isn't this humility? She anoints them, uh, the text says, with ointment. This is probably some sort of like a, an expensive perfume or oil, this expensive uh, item um, to bless Jesus with. What's going on here? Well, Jesus makes it really clear later in the text, doesn't he? He, he says, she's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. Why is she acting this way? She knows she's forgiven. And so she loves much. She has heard Jesus' message of forgiveness and restoration with God, and she has believed it's for her. She's believed it, and so she's been forgiven. She doesn't do these actions. This is really important for us to see. She doesn't do these actions towards Jesus to win his forgiveness, right? Okay, Jesus, I'll give you 10 tears and two ounces of ointment, and you will give me forgiveness in return. That would be getting things precisely backwards, if you look at the parable in verses 41 through 42, Jesus makes that clear. Two people owe the money lender a debt. One is immense, one is rather small. Neither people can pay their debt. They can't pay it back. And so to forgive his debtors, the money lender simply has to frankly forgive them. Just, just eat the cost himself so that they both can be free and forgiven. And so this woman's acts of love and gratitude, they are not the grounds for her forgiveness, but they're the evidence of her forgiveness. Uh, her, her love for Jesus flows out of, it is empowered, it's energized by the free grace of forgiveness that she's already received. As verse 50 points out, if you look at there, Jesus states it simply. Her faith simply rests in and receives God's free forgiveness. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
The big sinner loves big because she's been forgiven big. She's been forgiven much. She's got a lot that needs to be forgiven, but she has been, and so she loves much. What a beautiful reminder, uh, an invitation to you listening, <laughs> to me, you know, wh- whoever listens to this, uh, that whatever sins you're carrying, whatever shame or guilt from your past that haunts you, that feels like that scarlet letter on you, no matter how long you've been carrying it on you, come to Jesus, lay it at his feet, be forgiven, be changed, be at peace, find rest. Everyone's welcome. No one's excluded. Not one person. There's not a grade, there's not a level of sin and shame and guilt that you can carry that Jesus will not receive, that he can't cancel the sin of when you come to him for healing. Maybe you've got that person or that group. You think, oh, this certain type of person or somebody who does this particular kind of sin, they're too dirty, God doesn't want it. God does not have that category. We might, but he doesn't. And praise God for that. Um, I grew up going to my, my grandparents' brethren church whenever I'd visit them. And, and they perhaps were not the most welcoming group of people to certain groups within their town, unfortunately. But they sang a song, which, which I've always remembered, and this is the line. The vilest of sinners, the vilest of sinners, who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And when such a sinner is forgiven, they love Jesus much. That's the point of this. R.C. Ryle, he's an Anglican theologian, he wrote this. The only way to make people holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The fear of punishment, the desire for reward, the sense of duty that we might have may persuade people to holiness or good works or self-denial for a little while. But until a person loves Christ... They are weak and powerless. Do you want to grow in holiness? Like, do, do you want to love Jesus more, to grow in Christian maturity and obedience, to, to grow in self-control and serving others? This is what you do. You remember how much you've been forgiven. You don't try to minimize it. You don't try to recast it. You look at it in all of its ugliness, and then you meditate on the great cost it was to Christ to take on your sin and the great love that he was willing to do it. You ask God to grow your love and affection for Christ because this is the principle of the kingdom, all right? He who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. And so part one of our our study in Luke 7 is looking at the woman, looking at her great love. It's because she's she's been forgiven much. Part two, we're going to look at Simon, Simon the Pharisee. And we're going to look at Simon's middling reception, his middling reception of Jesus. If the woman had a great, superabundant, joyful, passionate, costly love for Jesus, if that's what she expressed, you could describe Simon's love for Jesus with with the word or the sound or the the, the movement of of, uh, meh. Simon, do you love Jesus? Eh, yeah, sort of, right? Unlike the woman, Simon's not known for his big sin, all right? Simon's a Pharisee. That's what the text says. So that means he's part of this influential religious group in Israel. They're dedicated to keeping and upholding the Torah, which is God's word. He's given himself wholly to a life of thorough, rigorous worship and obedience to God. He's never far from the temple or the synagogue. 
Uh, in Nova Scotia, we love our doctors and nurses, and rightfully so, right? They're very high in our trustability scale in society. We're thankful for them. We put their photos on the sides of buses. We honor them publicly. We've got days dedicated to them. They are held up in Nova Scotia as the kind of people we should all be like, right? They're selfless, service-oriented, hardworking. The Pharisees were like that in Israel. They were pictures of what the ideal Israelite really should be like. They kept the law. They knew it. <coughs> they went to the temple. They remained pure and faithful when other Jews compromised with the local cultures or they only practiced their faith half-heartedly. Simon and the Pharisees were hardcore religious, which is something that most Israelites couldn't claim. But culturally, they kind of felt we, we really should be more like that. Now, the Pharisees, if you know the gospel accounts at all, you know they've already had a few, a few dust-ups with Jesus, right? Uh, they, they don't seem to like him. They don't seem to trust him. They certainly don't like that the crowds seem to really be into Jesus. And Luke points this out, that for all of their external religiousness, inwardly they're being eaten up by envy. Like they love that people respect and want to be like them and honor them in public. They feed off of that. A little warning to you doctors and nurses in the room. All right? And when they see the crowds beginning to honor and to respect Jesus, man, they hate that. Right? Really, you can think of it as the woman's sin is, is, is so on the outside, but the Pharisee's sin is deeply hidden inside. And so for me, when I was looking at this text this week, one of the most puzzling parts was, why did Simon invite Jesus to dinner? It like, in verse 36, Jesus got an invitation to eat. Why? Why would Simon want Jesus in his home? And that's, that's good on Jesus, right? He accepted the invitation. He's the friend of sinners, even religious hypocrites right? It's good news for us. But why did Simon invite Jesus to dinner? It's not, it's not really clear. Was it to observe Jesus more closely, to maybe hear him out, you know, ask some questions? Maybe it was to lecture Jesus, get in a few, you know, prearranged shots at the proper time. Maybe it was to wine and dine Jesus. Maybe I can woo him to the Pharisee party. Or maybe it was just to, you know, kind of be seen in public with a, with a public celebrity. Maybe some of, some of the goodwill of the public will rub, rub off on Simon. Why Simon invited Jesus to the meal isn't entirely clear. But what kind of host Simon was to Jesus is actually very clear. Simon's reception of Jesus is middling. It's not warm. It's not generous. It's distant. It's cool. It's somewhat testy. Hope you see that in the text. Certainly, Simon, you know, good for him. He invited Jesus to dinner. Verse 36. If you look at verse 40, he even calls him teacher, which is, which is, which is a, a very polite you know, term to, to address him to. But in verse 39, you see that Simon in his secret heart says to himself, this guy is not a prophet. Because a messenger who bears God's words wouldn't let that filthy woman touch him. Again, externally things are okay. Internally they're a mess. Simon prepares food for Jesus. We don't know what dish they ate. It's probably very good. And yet he doesn't show the common courtesies towards Jesus that were normal in that time. Jesus notes this. He calls him out in verses 44 through 46. In verse 44, if you look at it, when Jesus arrived for the meal, Simon offered him no water to clean his feet. That was just a standard thing in the ancient world that a host would do for a guest, to welcome them from the dusty and dirty streets. It's like the Swiss chalet finger bowls, but in reverse, it comes before the meal, and it's for your feet. It's not an over-the-top gesture. It's not like you're at the Ritz, right? You're Swiss chalet. But, but it's, just, it's just something nice to do for somebody. 
In verse 45, Simon didn't give Jesus the customary kiss of greeting when he arrived to his home. This is the equivalent of giving somebody a warm embrace. I don't know if you're not a hugger, maybe like a polite nod and a handshake. I don't know what what you're into. But this is, again, this isn't over the top. This is just the standard way of showing welcome. To, To say, I'm happy to see you. I want you to feel at home here. In verse 46, Simon didn't give Jesus oil to anoint his head with. This was a very dry, hot climate, uh, and it was very common to offer oil to anoint the head, to kind of like a moisturizer to let someone freshen up after the journey. Simon didn't even show Jesus that very common courtesy. Now, none of these acts, or really non-acts, of Simon's are scandalous. They're going to cause a scandal in the society. They're sins of omission, not sins of commission. So by their very act, they are more subtle. They weren't big, obvious sins like the woman's sin was. His sin, it just seems so average, right? So minor. This is so trifling. And yet, despite the smallness of the lack of these gestures, Simon's acts actually reveal a huge issue in his heart. And this is it. He doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't love Jesus. He might be a law keeper, He might go to the temple. He might go to the church as often as you do. He might look like he has it all together. He might be the envy of of a sinner's eye. He might be the picture of perfection compared to the woman, but he doesn't love Jesus, and this is damning. In verse 47, Jesus contrasts Simon with the woman, and he says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now, again, not that her forgiveness is the result of her love, but her love is the evidence of her forgiveness. And then Jesus compares Simon to the woman. And he says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon, you, you don't love me like this woman loves me. Because you've not been forgiven like this woman's been forgiven. Simon, you don't show me love. You don't act loyally towards me because you think I owe you for your religious rule keeping instead of reflecting on the incredible debt that you owe to me. See, Jesus, he publicly, he authoritatively, lovingly, he tells the woman, look at verse 48. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your great scandalous public sins, they're forgiven. And the contrast with Simon, it really couldn't be clear. His coldness, his lack of love for Jesus demonstrates that his sins remain. And so, friends, listen. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you treasure? Do you adore? Do you love him publicly? Like this woman did, without fear or respect for what others may think of it. Or like Simon, you know, in your words through your thoughts, through your deeds, nothing scandalous, nothing huge, all pretty average. Your love for Jesus is meh. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Christian. Yeah, that's fine. I appreciate him. I want want to to be part of this, but, you know, I I don't think I have to, to believe everything that Jesus says. I don't think I need to go all, I don't need to obey everything that Jesus has for me. I, I'll just kind of do the minimum. The words of Revelation chapter 3, they speak to Simon and they speak to us. This is what Jesus says to such people. 
says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, because you're middling, because you're meh towards me, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I, am, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you love Christ? Do you really love him? Do you love him with your thoughts and with your actions? Do you love him privately and publicly? Do you love him with your wallet and with your Netflix account? Do you love him in your romantic relationships, in your leisure time? Do you love him in your workplace and in your retirement plans? He who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. In part one, we looked at, at the woman. We looked at her great love. In part two, we looked at Simon and his middling reception of Jesus. And this is what we'll end here with part three, looking at Jesus. And we'll see that in Jesus, we see the perfect host. Jesus is the perfect host. How can Jesus forgive the woman's sins? That's actually a question that comes up at the table. Verse 49, they wonder, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? It doesn't make a lot of sense that Jesus forgives the woman's sins. Uh, Jesus hasn't been around this woman. He's not from this town. How can he forgive her sins? Isn't the person that she's offending the one who's supposed to forgive her? But here's the thing. Jesus can offend her sins because he's actually the chief party offended by them. See, her sin, like, like ours, isn't primarily a violation of the community standards, Right? Or, or a sin against ourself. Like, ah, I really let myself down. I broke my own conscience. I promised myself I wouldn't do that. Her sin in the first place is sin against God. It's his word that she ignored. Loyalty to him, which she refused. And yet, and yet when she comes to Jesus with her sin in her hands, with her debts piled high above her head, she doesn't find an exacting money lender who demands every last penny paid. She finds a warm and generous host. Jesus welcomes and loves this woman. This is a beautiful story to be reminded of the love that Jesus has for sinners. He doesn't just say, you're forgiven, now get out of my sight. No, he gives her rest from her journey in the wastelands of sin and death. He feeds her with food and fills her cup with the waters of forgiveness. He conquers her great enemies of shame and guilt and death by taking her place through his own death. He blesses and brightens her dry and weary life with the oil of gladness and gives her, gives this woman of the city, a sinner who there was much to forgive, a place in his house forever. Simon didn't love Jesus, and so he was a terrible host. But Jesus loved this woman, and so he was a perfect host to her. The Bible, of course, tells beautiful stories like this to build our faith, but there are also beautiful psalms we're given to celebrate, to sing about our faith and our forgiveness in Christ. And so this week, I couldn't get Psalm 23 out of my head. I kept on thinking about it because I imagined this woman who was once a lost sheep, <laughs> nowhere to go, without any help or hope in the world, now being loved, being forgiven much. And I imagine her in the temple or the synagogue, singing Psalm 23 with a heart filled with faith. Listen to me. Listen, listen with me to Psalm 23 and listen to her singing. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to to rescue and to bring us back to you. We thank you that you are a warm and generous host. Spares no expense when children come back to him. And so we ask that you would help us with all of our sins, whether they are external and big or internal and well hidden, uh, to bring them to the feet of Jesus to receive forgiveness and life. God, thank you for the promise to receive the vilest of sinners when we truly believe. Help us to enjoy the pardon and to praise you and to love you because of it. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.